Good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. Good to see you all. Regular short church attendees, as always, great to see your faces, friends and guests and those in town from out of town. Um, love that you're here. Hopefully, hope you feel at home. We're, uh, you're an answer to prayer. We're very glad that you're here. You're joining us in the middle of, or pardon me, on week three of a new 10-part series, series that we're working through on the book of First John. First John, written, of course, by the Apostle John um, to a group of churches, which now makes up present-day uh, Turkey, a region um, now present-day Turkey. Now, John had previously written a gospel um, an account, a, a firsthand account testimony of his time with and encounters and really the whole life ministry of Jesus in the gospel of John. And that had been dispersed throughout the region. And then because of a number of different factors, some different teachings, some false teachers, some ideologies began to seep in. Um, and, and John became concerned, really, what people were believing had shifted. And so he doubled back. He wrote the gospel, or the, the gospel, the letter of 1 John and sent it out to all these churches. So 1 John is John um, reconnecting with churches and, and setting straight, rearticulating um, kind of correcting, really setting the record straight on some things that he had written beforehand. Now, he opened in chapter one saying, Jesus was and is uh, the eternal God who took on flesh, came down into human history in order to intervene, die, rescue mankind, but also give them a gift. And we spent some time taking a look at that gift he came to give, eternal life. Um, the word zoe, we, 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 we examined that. We spent some time taking a look at this, this new type of life, um, this abundant life, this new quality of life, this overflowing life. Really, this zoe life is the character, the, the life that Christ had in himself that he came to give us. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, I've come that they might have life, zoe that they might have life and have it more abundantly. This is what Jesus came to do, was to change our life experience now. Yes, change eternity, but also change the quality of life that we have today. In Christianity, it stands unique in that salvation in eternal life isn't just something that's a far-off notion, a distant idea to be fully realized one day when we die or Jesus comes back. Rather, it's on hand, it's available, it, you can partake of it today. That's what we took a look at the first week. And um, then he begins to open this letter with this description of this new quality and character of life that's on hand for us all. And he transitions into now where we're working through three tests, three tests for believers to see whether or not they are partaking of this new life. Um, last week, James went, walked through one of these. Um, but th these tests, what we need to, to understand them as is not so much um, who's in, who's out, but indicator lights for us, dashboard indicator lights, letting us know whether or not we are partaking of this life that is available for us on hand to be drinking from, to be feasting on or not. So. In my late teens, I had an amazing truck that I loved. It was big. It was yellow, really bold color. Uh, 1979 GMC Grand Sierra. I loved that truck. So fast. Um, one day I was at work and I parked it in a near vertical position. And um, I got into my truck at the end of the day and I backed it down. I drove it home and I had um, my stereo just cranked listening to Audio Slave. 
And um, I was so focused on um, my harmonization with Chris Cornell that I failed to notice a dashboard indicator light had come on. I didn't see the light at all. What I did notice is um, at some point after that, my engine started to smoke. And so I'm going down the highway and I, I pulled over and there was just pillars of smoke coming up from the truck that I loved, um, which was no more. I had melted the engine block. I'd failed to notice the indicator lights and my truck was kaputz. I never got to drive it again. I needed to pay attention to the dashboard indicator lights. The tests, these indicator lights that John is presenting to us, they help us determine if we're indeed participating in the life that Jesus has on hand for us. And we need, that we need the life, the zoe that we need in order to walk the Christian walkout, to walk in the way of Jesus, to walk as Jesus walked. We need this life. Trying to live the life of a Christian without partaking of the life Jesus came to give us, it's like me trying to drive my truck with no oil. It can't work. The first test, um, James walked through it last week, the first test that James, or pardon me, James, Pastor James walked through this, John, another J guy, um, the first test that John presented was how our relationship with one another and how our confession of sin or maybe our lack of confession of sin is an indicator to us whether we are really walking in this life that Jesus purchased for us. This week, John's going to present to us another test. He's going to show us that the measure of how much we are walking in and enjoying and participating in this new Zoa life will be reflected by and through our ongoing relationship with sin and the commands of God. If that doesn't make sense now, it's going to. It's going to. We're going to do some work. We're going to take a look at this. So go ahead, open your Bibles, 1 John. If you open to the very back, you'll see Revelation, and then you just kind of flip to your left a little bit. It's about five or six books in. You'll see 1 John. While you flip there, let me open us in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, I thank you. Uh, thank you for preserving your word. Thank you for coming, uh, gifting us this new Zoa, this new life. Thank you for coming and being a suitable sacrifice that could purchase that for us. You're, you're the God of the universe, but you condescended to human form and you came and walked amongst us. And that's perplexing, but we know it's true. So we worship you for that. I thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the instruction of John. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come ignite this? Ignite the word this kindling that I've stacked, would you breathe life and fire into it? And I pray that we would become more enamored with you, Jesus, and deeper participators in that life as a result of this. And I pray and commit all of this to you, Father God, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> so read with me, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read verse 1 to 6. It's up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. <clears throat> Actually, it's not up on the screen. This is for later. Just wait. There we go. Okay, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar 
and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now John opens by saying, my little children. This is because he's writing to Christians, Christians, disciples he's probably made, um, churches that he's helped plant, and so he's speaking with this fatherly affection. This is written to Christians. But he's also old. He's in his late 90s, maybe early 100s, so like literally everyone's younger than him, so he's earned this right to call them little children. Little children, he opens, and then he says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Now, what might jump out is what we read last week, what we saw up on the screen this morning, is that, is that John closed chapter 1 by saying, if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying. The truth of God isn't in us. How can he now say Say this. How can he in one breath say, if we say we have no sin, we're lying, and in the very next breath say, I'm writing this so that you may not sin? It can be a little perplexing. Something we need to keep in mind as we wrestle this question out. All of the, the, um, the, the, the paratext in our Bibles, what, what I mean by paratext is the, the chapters, the verse numbers, some of the headings that you'll see above chunks of scripture in your Bible, those were added about 500 years ago. Those are there really to help us navigate and just be able to find our way through the Bible. And what we need to keep in mind is that where chapter one left off and chapter two picks up, there, there isn't an, a division in the original text. These aren't two separate thoughts. They're actually one thought. And I want to pull them together for us in order to help us understand what's actually going on here. So if you would, rewind with me just a tiny bit. Go back to chapter 1, verse 8. Now we can put that up on the screen. Chapter 1, verse 8. And I want to read it straight through to 2, verse 1 in order to help us understand this. It says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, we're going to come at this a few different ways. Um, this word translated as sin here, I'm going to do a tiny bit of work on that just so that we can get a sense of what he's referring to. The Greek word translated into English as sin here, it's a word implies missing the mark, but not just missing the mark, missing the mark in such a way as to not be able to get the reward that comes from hitting the mark. It, it means to error, to, to, to fall short, to offend, to trespass, to fail. This is what's being summarized and, and kind of held up in this word sin. And I'll use John's own description of sin. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he says this. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. Sin, as John defines it, is lawlessness. It's transgressing the law, failing to obey the law. Now, all of us have done this. Some of you broke the law on the way here this morning. Driving twice the speed limit, trying to get here on time. Welcome, glad you made it. 
Show of hands, how many people have ever broke the law? Mihai, I've driven with you, man. Get your hand up. All of us, at some point or another, have broken the law, most likely. Maybe you haven't. I, I most certainly have. But when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the law of this land. It's referring to the ways that we've disobeyed the law of God. And the Bible makes it clear that every single one of us have transgressed the law of God. Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned. So all have transgressed the law of God. All have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And this is why John says, at the end of chapter 1, if anyone says he's not sinned, he's a liar. Because we've all transgressed the law. And we've all sinned against God. And this is a problem. This is a really big problem because who we sin against matters. It matters a lot. Now, if I was, if I was to step down off here and, and choose somebody randomly, Thomas Hanna, go up to Thomas Hanna and slap him, there'd be a consequence. There'd probably be some relational things between me and Thomas. Maybe he'd... <laughs> Maybe he'd run and get the manager of the theater, though. And so Leland comes in here. If I was to slap Leland, there would be a consequence. He'd probably call security and have me removed. And when they couldn't, they would probably call the police. (laughs) Call the police. There would be a consequence then. If I was to slap the police officer, though, the consequences go up. If I was to slap the judge that they brought me in front of, consequences. If I was to find Justin Trudeau when he's here snowboarding or something and slap him, the consequences would be even more severe. You throw over. <laughs> the point is, who our offense is against matters. And it has a direct correlation to the severity of the consequence. You and I haven't just sinned against one another or the authorities or the leaders of a country. We've sinned against the God of the universe, and that's a problem. That's a big old fat problem because God can't just ignore that. He can't just sweep that under the rug. Proverbs 17, it says this. It says, exonerating and acquitting the guilty is detestable to God. We know this instinctively, too. If somebody goes, commits an egregious crime and gets brought before a judge and the judge just says, hey, I'm going to let this go, we would cry foul. In our hearts, we would know that. We, we would, I mean, we'd throw a pro, protest. Well, we'd write something on Facebook for sure, right? We'd be angry. But I want us to notice something from our reading last week. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. He's faithful and just. How can that be so? How can he be just in forgiving sins? Now, because we got to answer this. There's a notion going on in the church that God, God just kind of forgives our sins because he loves us. He just chooses to overlook our sins. And the thinking kind of goes like this. You know, I've done some things, but aren't I just so lovable? 
Look at this face. We're, we th- <laughs> like God looks down and he's like, hey, I really want that guy on my team. I'm just going to forgive his sins. We'll let this one slide. I need him. I don't, I don't know how the logic works in our heads, but there's this idea that God's just forgiving sin willy-nilly. That church is not a good God. That church is not a faithful God. That is most certainly not a just God. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of every other theistic religion in the world. That's what Mormons believe. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That's what Islam hopes for. That's what Baha'is believe. That's what Sikhs believe. But that is not a good God. That is not a just God. And that's not the God of the Bible. 1 John 1.9 says that he is good, he is faithful, and just to forgive all our sins. Now, this first word um, um, that we read in, uh, well, let, just let me read with, again, ver, um, 2 John 1. It says, my children, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we've all sinned. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. There's two great words I want to take a look at in those first two verses that are going to help us understand what appears to be a contradiction in what John has presented to us. And they're going to help us see that they are, in fact, not a contradiction. The first word is this word advocate at the back end of verse 1. This word advocate, it's a legal title used to describe someone who represents you in court. In Greek, it's the word parakletos. Parakletos, it's um, one who pleads another ca- another's case before a judge. We could think of it this way. He's our def- it, it, defense lawyer, legal counsel. Parakletos, that's what that means. Why is Christianity uniquely poised among all the religions in the world in order to take care of, us, of sin in such a way that none of the others can? Why is the God of Christianity called both faithful and just? Because Jesus is our parakletos. Jesus is our defense lawyer. Jesus is the one pleading our case before the judge of the universe. Every other religion in the world has us pleading our case before God. And if you've watched any Legal drama on TV at all? Good wife, anyone? Come on. You know self-representation doesn't go well. It does not go well. Even if you could, if you can trick the law of the land or fool your parents or trick your employees, you, you, you can't pull the wool over the eyes of the God of the universe. He's perfectly just. He's not deceived. Jesus is our parakletos. Christianity is unique in that it presents and provides us with a defense lawyer. And I, I want to I share three reasons that we need Jesus as our defense lawyer. It's up on the screen. Uh, because of who it says, because of who Jesus is, rather. We need a defense lawyer because of who Jesus is. 
To quote John, Jesus is the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the earthly incarnation of the triune God. Who better to represent you before God than God himself? Second reason we need Jesus as our advocate is because of what Jesus did. Because he did what no one else could do. Because he paid the consequences for sin. Verse 2, it says this. He's a, the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus came down. He died the death in our place. He paid the consequence for our sin already. We need Jesus as our defense lawyer, as our parakletos, because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus did, and also because of where it says Jesus is. Take a look at this again at the end of verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father. There's no other advocate that we could have who is already with the Father. Jesus is right beside, Revelation says, seated at the right hand of God. He's there pleading our case, right there. Jesus alone could stand in our place and sufficiently absorb the wrath of God reserved for the punishment of our sins and the sins of the whole world. A human couldn't stand in our place. It had to be God. Jesus alone lived a perfect life, died a death in the place of you and me. Every other religion writes prescriptions for you to go and fill yourself. Jesus gives you a clear title based off of something that he's already done. And Jesus alone is described as being seated at the right hand of God in heaven. It's because of where he is, who he is, and what he did that God can be faithful and just to forgive us. Because as verse 2 says, he alone was a suitable sacrifice, or the word it will use is propitiation for our sins. And so I want to go to this second word for a second, the word propitiation. Um, this word's really hard to translate to English. Really hard. If you aren't familiar with the word propitiation, yeah, welcome to the club. It's um, not a word that really gets used anymore. It's hard to, to actually summarize everything that it's communicating into a word. There's books, there's volumes, tomes, probably libraries written on this one word. Um, but what we need to know, the word translated as propitiation is the Greek word halasmos. Halasmos is used only in this letter of John's. We don't find it used um, anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, one way of describing what it means would be to say that Jesus is the means of appeasing for our sins. It, this word propitiation, it links together Jesus' work with the priests in the Old Testament, their temple service. And so in most commentators, as they try to describe this, what they'll do is they'll bounce back to Leviticus 16. And so I want to go there just for a quick second. Leviticus 16, verses 8 to 10, it says this. Um, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the... Let me preface this. Is they would bring these two goats up in order um, to have sin taken care of. And now read this with me. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, and one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. What's being communicated in this idea of propitiation is one thing standing in the place of another. 
Jesus coming, taking our punishment, and we are that scapegoat. Jesus dies our death. He propitiates for our sin so that the other goat can be set free into the wilderness. That's you and me. He's taken our punishment. We've been set free. What we see Jesus accomplishing as this propitiation is what the goat who was killed as an atonement sacrificed accomplished. Dying in the place of another, and now rather than us being killed for our sin because of Jesus' work on our behalf, we're presented alive before God, we're set free, we're atoned for. That's also a new word to you. Um, Just quickly, um, atonement, it basically means being reconciled together with God. Some people joke and say it means at one minute atonement, but that is what it did. It took care of the, of the separation between God and man, and now because of Jesus' propitiating work, substitutionary work, we're at one with God. We have relationship with God. So it's Jesus' propitiating work that opens up and makes available um, the Zoe life for us. The kanoinia fellowship that we talked about in week one. Life abundant, right relationship with the Father is available only through Jesus. And this is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me because nobody has done what Jesus did. Because no one else stands where Jesus stands. No one is who Jesus is or has done what he's done. Only he has sufficiently absorbed the wrath of God for all of mankind, as our text says. Now, does that mean everyone in humanity has been atoned for? Yes. Does that mean everyone in humanity is going to receive that atonement? No. We need to actually receive it. We need to partake of it. So how do we do that? To word it differently, how do we receive Jesus as our legal counselor? How do we get Jesus on our legal defense board pleading our case before God? It's an important question. John's really concerned about this. This is why he's writing these tests. He opened his book talking about this life on hand for us. How do we get it? Well, Revelation 3.20, John, who also wrote that book, he says, he quotes Jesus as saying this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him, eat with him, and he will be with me. Jesus is described as knocking at our door with his legal services, wanting to come and defend us. But how do we open that door and let him in? Um, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, that gave his only son, that whosoever should believe... Believe in him will not perish. Um, John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If we want to receive eternal life, if we want to receive that Zoa life, we need to believe there's an action we need to believe in order to have that administered to our account. And John uses this word believe twice as much as the rest of the New Testament combined. What he's trying to communicate with this word 
is a trusting reliance on who Jesus is, what he did, and where he now is. And a confidence that is placed in Christ's promise to give eternal life to us, not just in the future, but right now as well. So how do we know whether we've believed and received this eternal life? That's what John's getting at here. Read with me 1 John 2, verse 3 on. It says, by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. and The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he lived. Notice that he doesn't say here, by this we know that we will come to know him. He doesn't say, we know we'll come to to believe in or to, to know him if we keep his commands. It says, by this we know we have come to know him. The idea of knowing God to some, it's been relegated as this pure future idea, this purely future event to happen. But John brings knowing God to the present. Many likely think that knowing God's a future event to be experienced if we obey his commands, but John doesn't say that. He says Christianity is knowing God and it's expressed through keeping his commands. This is two different things. Two completely different things. Obedience is present in both, but in one, it earns God's grace. In the other, it expresses the relationship we're already having with God. You see that? Does the same, it's present in both. It's very different in how it functions. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Um, now, most, most commentators agree. John's writing this book because the church, they'd come to a form of knowledge about God. They, they consented to a certain belief about Jesus, but it stopped there. When it came to their faith, their ideas had changed, but their actions had not they believed something, but in practice, it, their lives looked no different. And for many of us, that's maybe how we're feeling. If we examine our lives, maybe that's an accurate description of our own walk. It's, it's common to hold a belief that Jesus died in our place in order to hedge our bets for eternal life, so to speak. We believe he died to reconcile us, and we're sort of just holding on to wait and see if that pays off one day. We might consent to some ideas about them, but our lives look no bit different than before. We're just sort of biding time, hoping eternity will pay off for us. But the problem with this sort of thinking, church, is that when we hold the enjoyment of Christ as a purely future idea, we fail to let the eternal life materialize in us now. We fail to participate in the abundant life Jesus came to die and died in order to gift to us. And for many here, our lives display this hollow faith. We're still looking for our fulfillment, for our joy, for 
that energy and zest for our life from our experiences, from our fitness, from our things, from our cars, from our jobs, from our sex, from our relationships, from our pursuits, from our conquests, from our entirely self-centered lives. Nothing in our life communicates any satisfaction in Christ whatsoever other than that we show up to church on Sunday mornings. And the reason why is because we don't actually have any satisfaction in Christ. A heart, John says, that is satisfied in Christ is displayed by obedience to God. A heart that's satisfied in God is demonstrated by obedience to God. A heart that's satisfied in God delights in obeying God's commands. But please, 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 please hear me, okay? This, and I am not saying that you obey God in order to get God. John is not saying that. John is saying that relationship with God is available through belief in God. And if you've received that, it's expressed through obedience. We're saved through belief in who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's accomplished in our behalf. And it's demonstrated and it oozes and evidences out of us through obedience. John, elsewhere in his gospel, verse, um, chapter 14, verse 15, quotes Jesus saying, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is Jesus. I want to point out something here that blew my mind when I first saw it. If you're looking up and you're like, what's wrong with that guy? This is, this is what's wrong. I saw this. This bounced around in my brain a little bit. The word translated as helper here. So it, let's just read that again. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. This word translated helper there it's the same word John uses to describe Jesus as our advocate. It's the word parakletos. The one who pleads another's case before a judge. Our legal counselor, our defense lawyer. Notice, John described Jesus as our parakletos, and now he describes the Holy Spirit as our parakletos as well. And this is, okay, this is about to get pretty crazy. Hold on to your arms a little there, okay? The idea of God taking up human flesh and coming into, in, into the world was crazy. You'll remember I said a couple weeks ago, this blew Middle Eastern minds to the Greek, to the Jew alike. That was outrageous, the idea of God coming down and inhabiting his creation. But read the end of verse 17 with me. Read the end of this with me. I will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, now get this, and will be in you. The God of the universe first dwelt among us, now it says he lives in us. He takes up residence in us. 
in order to be our parakletos, our legal counsel, the one arguing on our behalf. Let that sink for just a sec. Think about that. God dwells in you. I've been just perplexed by this this week, like completely baffled. This is the craziest idea. God dwells in us, but why? What's he doing in us? Well, he's fulfilling a prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Um, That's up on the screen, right? Do we have Ezekiel? Perfect, okay. Read with me, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols and I will give you a new heart. This right here, this first half of this prophecy is um, what Jesus Christ, our Paracletos, accomplished for us. He cleansed us from all of our sins. Now notice what it says. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow to my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is what the Holy Spirit, our Paracletos, our legal defense lawyer who lives inside of us, does. He causes us to walk in obedience. We know we not only have a heavenly advocate, we have a bodily advocate. We have God in us dwelling, the Holy Spirit. This is the unique twin hope of Christianity. No other religion, philosophy, worldview, whatever you want to call it, spiritual thing offers this. This is the unique twin hope of Christianity. We have a God who is paid for our sins, stands pleading our defense in heaven, and we have God who dwells in us. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he's in you to be your legal defense lawyer. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen to that again. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You cannot keep the commandments. The Holy Spirit in you will because he works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God doesn't leave us to clean ourselves up. He doesn't sweep our sin under the rug. He atones for it himself. And now as we confess our sins and we carry them to Jesus, he can forgive us because he paid for them. He doesn't forgive us willy-nilly. He doesn't ignore our sins. He pays for them. Anything that Satan could bring against you and stand before God and go, he did this. Jesus goes, I already paid for it. That's paid for. That's old news. And because he's paid the ultimate penalty and consequence and payment for our sins, the the consequence of sin, which was division between God and man, has been taken care of. And now there isn't any division between God and man. God has come down. Jesus has opened a way. He's rent that curtain in two. And the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. He's in us. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, we're in fellowship, we're in canonia with God because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And the invitation that John keeps setting before us, the plate and the table that he keeps setting is to show us that partaking in communion and fellowship with God is available right now. And so 
we shouldn't look as command, at these commandments as just things that we do to earn God. They're the things that we do to enjoy this feast that's been set before us. I want to read um, two things in Romans, if you want to flip there with me. Romans, let's go six first. Romans six. It says this, verse 12, we'll read verse 12 and on for a bit. Um, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves or as present it to it as your master, that you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, if that's all of us, we've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and you've been set free from sin, and you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms, He says, but for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Jesus Christ established our righteousness, the Holy Spirit in us, as working sanctification out. For when we were slaves of sin, we were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were we getting at the time from the things of which we are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I want us to see, we've been set free from slavery to obedience to sin, and we've been set free to obey God. Now just take a look at to the right, Romans 8, let's read the first four verses together. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life have, has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you want to see this set up really beautifully, um, this week, go read Romans 6, 7, and 8. Super fascinating. This is what it's dealing with, is how our heavenly parakletos has worked out a new earthly opportunity for us, and the Holy Spirit in us, our bodily parakletos, enables that. Jesus, it says, has set us free from the law of sin and death, and we're no longer slaves of sin with no power to resist it. For God has not only forgiven our trespasses, he's gifted us his spirit. And this is why in 1 John 2 verse 1, he says, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. Does it make sense now? We've all sinned. But because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, we can live in such a way that we 
no longer participate in the sins which we once did. In fact, the Bible commands it. It commands it and it enables us because it puts the Holy Spirit within us. Does that mean we're never going to sin again? No. John's already said if we say we've not sinned, we're a liar and the truth's not in us. Nor we would equally be a liar if we were to say we would never sin again. But is there some sins that we've been perhaps believing we're never going to be free from? Now ask us this, what sin have we been believing that we're never going to stop falling into? Church, our, our patterns of sin, they can rob us of our enjoyment of God. And sadly, many think that the, there's no hope for it, that you just need to endure that sin until you die. Can I, can I invite us this morning, church, to retune our thinking? to retune our thinking, to bring back into line with the scripture that says sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Sin abounds under law, but sin is abolished under grace. It dies under grace. Verse nine of chapter one, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I suggest Confessing is not only the means by which we're forgiven, but also the means by which we're victorious over our sin. Perhaps confession is not only the means by which we're forgiven before God, but the means by which we're victorious over our sin right now. So I want to double back on the question Pastor James asked us last week is, what have we been holding in the dark and failing to bring to the light? What sin have you been wrestling with where you've just tossed in the towel and you're just waiting for Jesus to take you home to finally be free from? Can I say that that's unbiblical? And there's more than that. I was meeting with a brother the other week and, um, and he just, he said like, I can't wait to go home and see Jesus so I can finally stop lusting. And it's such a sad way to live our lives, but I think all of us are doing this. We're, we, we think that there's some sins that we're never going to beat, but that's making our sin bigger than Jesus. It's making our sin bigger than the Holy Spirit. And what John's reminding us of this morning is that the whole, God has taken care of our sin on an eternal scale so that the Holy Spirit can come and take care of sin in us right now. That's available for us. I want to encourage you this week to take some time to intentionally ask the Holy Spirit, where have I been ignoring you? Where have I been settling for anything less than the absolute zoe that Jesus came to give me, that abundant life that he came to give me? Maybe spend some time in silence and solitude. Really ask that question because I believe that for every single person in this room, there's more of God to be enjoyed and experienced than we ever have before, and I want that for us. I want that for me so bad. I want more of him. He says, those who seek me diligently, find me. Let's seek him. And let's ask the Holy Spirit, how can I partner with what you're already up in 
up to in me. The Holy Spirit's in you if you're in Christ and he's working out salvation in you. Let's just ask him, how can I partner with you? If you want to double back on our series we did this summer on the disciplines, we talk about a lot of different ways we can kind of join with what the Holy Spirit's up to. But just ask him. Ask him. Romans 8.14 says, all who are sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. He wants to lead you. Church, we have more reason for hope than anyone else in the world because Jesus is our parakletos. And we have more reason to have joy than anyone else in the world because the Holy Spirit is our parakletos who lives within us. God is in us. 